I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're continuing our study uh, of this gospel of Mark. And in the Lord's providence, uh, the, the text coincided with this Sunday, and we have here Jesus dealing with two groups of people who were uh, powerless and marginalized in the culture of that day, including children. So I think the Lord wants to tell us something today. And we come to God's Word, turning our ears and our eyes to His Word to hear what He would have to speak to us today. Mark 10, we're going to read 1 through 16 this morning. And He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to Him again. And again, as was His custom, He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test Him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. May God bless the reading and hearing of its word and write its truth upon our hearts today. Well, former President Ronald Reagan, through Proclamation 5147, issued on January 13, 1984, designated the 22nd of January of that year as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And he and succeeding American presidents issued the proclamation annually thereafter. There have been a couple of presidents who will go unnamed who did not sign that proclamation, but uh, most of them have. They designated the third Sunday of January today in 2013 as Sanctity of Human Life Day. Now, President Reagan's original proclamation called Americans to, quote, gather on that day in homes and places of worship to give thanks for the gift of life and to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life, a worthy cause. President Reagan has called us to. Now, of course, the timing of the proclamation uh, is a clear response to the Roe versus Wade decision that was handed down on January 22, 1973, that legalized abortion in the United States. But the proclamation is broad in that it reaffirms the commitment to the dignity of every human being and to the sanctity of each human life whether young, old, male, or female. Now, when it comes to abortion, there is some good news concerning abortion, and I want to read 
uh, a snippet from a news article that I read. Uh, I'm going to leave out a little part. So, first of all, I'll give you the good news. Research from the Allen Guttmacher Institute finds the number of abortions at its lowest level since Roe versus Wade down 25% since the all-time high in 1990. So abortions down 25%. Now let me include that little phrase that I left out and give you the bad news. Research from the Allen Guttmacher Institute finds the number of abortions at its lowest level since Roe versus Wade remaining steady at about 1.2 million reported procedures in the year 2011, down 25% since the all-time high in 1990. So the low of abortions, 1.2 million per year. This is the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and if you do the math, that adds up to something north of 50 million abortions that have been conducted that we know of since 1973. Now, abortion proponents often make the issue of a choice between the rights of women versus the rights of the fetus. Ten years ago, on the 30th anniversary, Suzanne Martinez, Vice President of Public Policy for Planned Parenthood, said the timing of the announcement that President Bush uh, made, made the same proclamation that President Reagan made, She said that it showed that the Bush administration has made it clear they'd like the law overturned in the United States. This administration for two years has waged a war against women, she said in a telephone interview. He has tried to elevate the rights of the fetus above the rights of women, and that's a tragedy. Now, one of the ideas I want to demonstrate from the text today, from this passage that we've read, is that Jesus is concerned about everyone's rights, particularly in this case that we're looking at today, about the rights of both women and children. It's not an either-or situation. As we heard from Charlotte earlier, uh, two lives were saved. The, the, The rights and the dignity of both those lives were respected. Now, when we add to abortion... Uh, war is going on worldwide, uh, murder, uh, many mass murders, or the mass murder that we've had in the news in the recent months, euthanasia that goes on illegally, and in some parts of the world even legally. It is evident that we need, as President Reagan asked us so many decades ago, we need to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life. Jesus did it. Uh, He is the life giver, and he certainly had respect for each human life. But sadly, in our passage today, there were people who did not have this same commitment to the dignity of every human being. Among those guilty were even Jesus' own disciples, we see here. And we have two episodes before us today. Let's look at them in turn. In the first episode, we have Pharisees coming up to Jesus, and it says there that in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, why were the Pharisees asking Jesus this question? Well, it tells us here that they were testing him, and what it means is that they wanted to trap him 
They wanted to obtain information from him that they could use against him. They wanted him to make a mistake in what he said so that they could have leverage over him and accuse him and undermine his authority. Now, the question that they asked is a tricky one because the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament, does not give permission to get a divorce. Rather, uh, well, it doesn't give permission to get a divorce, nor does it describe legitimate grounds for a divorce. But rather, it treats divorce as an established cultural practice of the day. The only place where it's addressed in the Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 24. And uh, it is seeking to regulate the practice of divorce that was going on in the culture of the day. And here's what it says. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So all that to say is... If uh, a man divorces his wife and she goes and gets remarried, there is no scenario in which he can remarry her again, even if she gets divorced, even if that second husband dies. What Deuteronomy is saying is that saying don't enter into divorce lightly. Once you do this, it's over. So don't take it lightly. It's not commenting on whether divorce is legal or what is a legitimate grounds for divorce. Now, in that day, in Jesus' day, the reason they're actually asking this question was that there was a great controversy amongst the rabbis over the grounds for divorce. You know, in, in the Deuteronomy passage that we looked at, the Mosaic Law says that if a man has, quote, found some indecency in his wife, a divorce can proceed through the writing of a bill of divorce. The question was, what does some indecency mean? One rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, he taught that it meant anything at all that displeased the husband. You know, if she burned the, the toast in the morning, he could give her a certificate of divorce and send her out of the house. Uh, if she spoke too loud or, or laughed too loud and, and annoyed the husband, out she goes. That was one rabbi's view. That was the liberal rabbi's view. Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, taught a more conservative approach, and he taught that some indecency only referred to gross sexual infidelity. Now, they're trying to get Jesus to land in one camp or the other. They want to pigeonhole Jesus so that they can... Uh, find out how to approach and attack him and to have the upper hand on him. But Jesus doesn't choose either camp. He chooses neither of these rabbis' position because in verse 5 he says, after he asks, you know, what did Moses say? And they repeated the, the, the ideas from Deuteronomy 24. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
He then goes on to explain that God's intention for marriage was that it was to be exclusive and permanent. In verse 6, marriage makes two people no longer two, but one, one flesh, he says. Marriage is far more than an association or partnership for goals, for common goals. Rather, it creates a new unit emotionally, spiritually, personally, and even physically. The marriage bond changes a person or both people involved in the marriage, changes them permanently, and individuals lose their independence. They're dependent upon one another. And and Jesus makes it even more clear when he says in verse 9, let not man separate that which God has joined together. Now, he undermines the liberal attitude towards divorce there. It's got to be a dire last resort said. It's, a, it's an amputation. had a lady, a friend of mine up in Clarksdale who struggled with, uh, with diabetes and, of course, often causes poor circulation. And, and she uh, had to have part of her leg amputated eventually. But it came in degrees. I mean, she, was, she, she wanted to hang on to her foot, uh, to her toes, and then her foot, and then it was part of her foot, and then finally they had to take it off at the knee. But it was a last resort for her, is what I want you to see. Uh, it, it only was done, this amputation was only done as a, as a last resort, as a, as a matter of life and death. The same is true for marriage. That's what Jesus is saying. It's an amputation. And yes, there may be uh, some scenarios where an amputation is necessary, but it's absolutely a last resort. The hardness of heart teaching of Jesus here exhibits both a recognition on one hand that certain sins like adultery or abandonment of a believer by a non-believer as the New Testament provides, those sins can mar a marriage beyond repair. But on the other hand, Jesus takes a higher view of marriage than many of the liberal Pharisees took. See, the Pharisees felt like a man can give his wife a a divorce certificate for any reason. That was their predominant viewpoint. So Jesus here reflects that the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of, of each human life is important. In this case, the sanctity of marriage, where two people become one, is what he's defending. Jesus fights to protect that one flesh that's created in marriage, this new life that comes together and is created, the new family. And he also guards the rights of those individuals who are sinned against when gross sin has been committed against him that would destroy that marriage. So on both sides, Jesus uh, is promoting life and dignity and rights. He's not restricting those like the Pharisees wanted to restrict or the more conservative group wanted to restrict. Now you notice also that when the Pharisees ask the initial question, they are not concerned about the wife at all. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce? You know, what is a man's rights in this scenario? Now, women in those days were vastly more vulnerable economically and socially. But Jesus shows, when you look at verse 12, that male and female both have equal rights and responsibilities in marriage. Verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. He's speaking of uh, an unbiblical divorce. And if she 
unbiblically, divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus shows us that we should respect the dignity and sanctity and rights of our spouse. And we should make every effort to work on our marriages and show that kind of love uh, and, and support and encouragement in our marriages. We should make every effort to make it work. Now, in the second episode, we find people bringing infants, small children, to Jesus that he might bless them. And the disciples were rebuking the people for doing so. Can you imagine? Sending them away. Now, why were the disciples rebuking the parents for bringing their children to them to bless them? Seems like they would want that to happen as we think about it from our perspective 2013. But we have to remember that they had a different attitude to children in the culture of Jesus' day. Let me read something to you from one commentator. He says, We should not read back our modern fascination and sentimentalization of childhood into the Gospels. The ancient world did not have a romantic notion of children. Children added nothing to the family's economy or honor and did not count. In the Greco-Roman world, one could literally throw children away by exposing unwanted infants at birth. Let me read you a letter that was written in the first century from a husband to his wife. He was away working in Alexandria, Egypt, and he sends a letter back to her. Hilarion to Alice, his wife, heartiest greetings, and to my dear Beroes and Apollinarion. Maybe that's his children, his other children. Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all the others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it is a male, let it live. If it is a female, expose it. You told Aphrodisius, do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, not to worry. The 29th year of Caesar, Pawnee 23. Can you imagine just writing a letter, you know, hey, how are you doing? Uh, if you hope you have a, a baby, if it's a male, keep it. If not, if it's a girl, just throw it away. By the way, uh, I'm going to stay here a little longer and work and, you know, have a nice day. So offhand. But you can see the attitude coming through of how people viewed children in those days. It got worse. The unscrupulous people would go around and find exposed children, children who had been left out in the wilderness, wherever, uh, to die, and they would raise them to be gladiators or prostitutes and even disfigure them on purpose to enhance their value as beggars. So children did not count in those days. And the disciples were buying in to some of this attitude. Now, I don't think the disciples were going to murder anyone or kill the children, but they were having this attitude of, don't bother Jesus with these insignificant, unimportant children. He's got more important things to do. Don't waste his time. And contrary to this, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them laying his hands on them. It's such a beautiful scene 
to see Jesus inviting these parents in and, and praying over these children, laying his hands on them and blessing them. Jesus goes against the grain of culture in that day and identifies with the powerless, with those who had no rights and with those whom most regard as insignificant and a bother. Now, like Jesus, may we do the same. May we identify with the powerless, with those who have no rights and who most regard as insignificant, particularly the unborn, as we've been thinking about today. Now, how can we be like Jesus in this regard? You know, we find that our, our hearts grow cold to the cause of the unborn. We don't hear them, their cries. You know, it's easy for us to ignore, to forget. How can we be like Jesus with His uh, love and care of those who are powerless and who have no rights? Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, Jesus here is referring to their weakness, the weakness of children. He's saying children are very vulnerable, dependent, and cannot do things for themselves. So to receive the kingdom of God like a little child means that we approach God with those same qualities, recognizing that we are dependent, we are helpless, we are needy. Human children can't fend for themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't care for themselves. They're quite helpless, even compared to young animals. Thus, we must come to Christ seeking His favor as a gift. We can't merit His grace. He doesn't owe it to us. It's not our right. But Jesus gives us that freely when we come to Him humbly. Now, if Jesus treats us that way, you know, we should treat others that way. If Jesus does not reject us or push us away when we come to Him, recognizing our own sin and brokenness and need, if He welcomes us in, that should fuel our fire to welcome others in, to reach out to others with the same love with which we've been welcomed in with. The, the people who enter the kingdom are not the worthy and the accomplished, but those who are willing to admit their helplessness and to simply depend upon the Lord. And Jesus rebukes the disciples who are having trouble, as we've been studying, they're having trouble recognizing that it's weakness and dependence. Those are the real qualifications for uh, the kingdom of God. You have to come to that place. And, and when you come to that place of recognizing your, the depth of your sin then, only then, can you appreciate the greatness of His grace and His mercy. Now, those who have come to Him as a little child, independence, come and they experience great grace and mercy. And when you have experienced that great grace and mercy, you can't help but want to share it because it's good news. That's what the gospel is. That's what the word means, good news. It's good news that, yes, I'm broken, I'm sinful. Christ welcomes me in. He doesn't shoo me away. He doesn't reject me, but He welcomes me in. He cleans me up. He cares for me. He's working on me. He's making me something into something that He wants me to be. 
And how dare me go to someone else and reject them or to say they're not worthy or to push them to the side and ignore them. And this goes for, yes, the weakest in our midst, the unborn, those who can't speak for themselves, those who can't defend themselves. So if we want to be like Christ in this regard, we've got to remember our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, our own need, and experience the depth of Christ's grace. That's when we are fueled to share it with others and to extend it to others. Remember how Jesus treated you and let that fuel your fire to treat others the same way, whether it be the unborn, whether it be your spouse. You know, we have marriage problems all around. How do I love that person? Well, Jesus commands, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. You have to know how Christ loved the church yourself first. How does he love you? Then you can share that love with your spouse. That's what Christ calls us to in cases with everybody, especially those who are most vulnerable. May the Lord help us to have that same kind of practice in our lives. Let's pray together.